You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Good morning, America. This is Pete Mecca, your host for a veteran story, WebRadio.com. My guest today is U.S. military veteran Steve Snyder. Steve really doesn't want to talk too much about his own story. Instead, he wants to relate his father's story. Steve's book, Shot Down, is the true story of his father, pilot Howard Snyder, and the crew of the B-17 Susan Luke. His father's unit was a 306 bomber group, part of the 8th Air Force operating out of England during World War II. Steve is past president of the 306 Bomb Group Historical Association. Ironically, yours truly flew on B-52s with the 306 Bomber Group out of McCord Air Force Base, Florida, before going to Vietnam. Steve, welcome to the program there, dude. Well, thanks a lot, Pete. Glad to be on the show. Well, I call you dude because you were out there in dude land. You're in California, is that correct? <laughs> yeah, born and raised. <laughs> God bless you, son. <laughs> well, it was a little... It was a- it was a little saner when I was younger. These days, it's not so much. <laughs> I, I think I think everybody knows what you're talking about. <laughs> uh, let's do this, Steve. Uh, we're going to get to your, your the book about your father, which is a great, great book. Uh, just tell the folks a little bit about your own military uh, service. Okay. Well, as a result of the uh, Vietnam lottery in uh, December of 1969, my my birthday was the second number picked. So uh, in 1970, I uh, joined the California Army National Guard, and I served in uh, a headquarters unit uh, from 1970 to 1976. Uh, fortunately, my unit didn't didn't get called up, so I was a weekend warrior for six years. Okay. Very good. Well, you served your country, and thank, I'll thank you for that, sir. Okay? Uh, tell, us, uh, tell us really what your book is about. Okay. Um, well, it recounts the experiences of a 10-man uh, B-17 bomber crew after their plane, piloted by, by my dad, was shot down over the French-Belgian border on February 8th of 1944. And it's just not about my dad, but it goes into detail about what happened to each member of the crew and also about all the courageous Belgian people that risked their lives uh, trying to help them. Five of the crew uh, made it home, but five of them did not. The first half of the book kind of leads up to the day that the plane was shot down, and then the second half of the book is all about what happened afterwards. I like that idea. Uh, it's just like the raid on Schweinfurt when we lost 60 B-17s at 600 men, but you don't know their names. Those were 600 men who lost their life for the country. You know there was 60 bombers that went down, but we don't know their names. So God, God That's knows. right. Yep, actually, in the 306 bomb group, 10 out of the 15 uh, B-17s that were on that Schweinfurt mission did not come back. Uh, that was October 14th. And my dad and his crew were actually replacements uh, after Second Schweinfurt. They reported to uh, the 306 bomb group on October 21st. Wow, wow, that that was a disaster. Uh, how did you come to write the book? 
Well, um, I knew the basics of my dad's uh, World War II history growing up. I knew he was a B-17 pilot. Uh, he was stationed in England uh, with the 8th Air Force, as you mentioned. His plane was named the Susan Ruth, after my oldest sister, who was one year old at the time that he went overseas. <laughs> and he flew bombing missions over uh, Europe, and then he was shot down on uh, February 8th of 44. And he was missing in action for seven months, but he evaded capture and eventually made it back home. But it wasn't until I retired in 2009 that I really had the time to delve into my dad's war history in more detail. And at that time, I had no intention of writing a book. I just wanted to go through the material that my uh, parents had kept uh, from the war years. And there were two items that were really significant. One was a diary that my dad wrote while he was missing in action, which is absolutely riveting that's in the book. And the other item were all the letters that my dad had written to my mother while he was stationed in England before he was shot down. And reading those letters is just fascinating. And I became fascinated with the story of my dad and his crew and I started uh, doing all this research. I went on the internet and spent countless hours doing research, downloading declassified military documents. I started reading book after book about the air war over Europe. I went on a quest to find relatives of all my dad's crew and ask them for any information that they could give me. Joined some uh, World War II organizations, started going to reunions, listening to veterans tell tell their stories. And finally, three years into my research, I just came to the conclusion that the story of my dad and his crew was so unique and so compelling that it needed to be told. Uh, people needed to, to hear about it, so I decided to write a book. All right. Uh, that, that's that's interesting. Uh, the, the book is titled Shot Down. Uh, I like that. But, you know, a lot of writers struggle sometimes with uh, what they're going to call their book or what the name they're going to give their book. I, I, maybe that was pretty easy for you to come up with, right? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it uh, when uh, you know that kind of popped into my head uh, right away, and uh, I thought about trying to come up with other uh, names for the book, but uh, that seemed like the best one to me. That's what it's all about. Okay, uh, how did your dad's plane get shot down? Well, it was on a bombing mission to uh, Frankfurt, Germany, on February eighth. Uh, they dropped their bombs successfully, but their bomb bay doors got hit by uh, anti-aircraft fire, flak, and they couldn't get them back up. And as a result, that caused the drag in the plane. They started losing airspeed, and they fell behind the bomber formation that was headed uh, back to England to their bases. And they were singled out by two German Focke-Wolf fighters. Um, and like lions or wolves, you know, coming in on prey, they swooped down on the Susan Ruth, and in uh, assuming the air battle, uh, the, uh, my dad's plane was shot down. Two of the crew were killed in the plane when it was attacked. Uh, the other eight were able to bail out uh, successfully. But both those two Focke-Wolf uh, fighters were shot down at the same time. One was piloted by Siegfried Merrick. His plane crashed, and he was killed in the plane. And the other uh, Focke-Wolf was piloted by Hans Berger. Uh, but he was able to bail out, and uh, he made it through the war. <laughs> okay, what was it? The the uh, crew of the B seventeen Susan Ruth that shot down the, the fighters. Yes. Um, okay. I didn't know that though. Right away, all my dad knew, and all the military uh, air force knew, was that you know my dad was shot down by two uh, German fighters, and that's all I thought I'd ever know. 
But during my research, one day, my wife, uh, Glenda, said, well, why don't you try to find the German pilot that shot down your dad's plane? And I'm thinking to myself, well, that's impossible. You know, she doesn't know what she's talking about. She's naive. You know, he probably <laughs> died during the war. It's 70 years later. He's passed away by now. I can't speak German. But like a good husband, I did what she told me to do, and uh, I found Hans Berger. And fortunately for me, he became a, a translator after the war, so he speaks perfect English. And that's when yeah. I found out that the uh, the gunners on my dad's plane shot Hans down at the same time that he shot them down. So they shot each other down. Wow. Wow. <laughs> uh, what an interesting story. Uh, yeah. I know that, that a lot of times when the B-17s fell out of formation, they were sitting ducks. Until we got the P-51s that could escort them all the way into Germany, uh, our fighter escorts couldn't go all the way to their targets many times. So, Right. Uh, do you know if the P-51s were available uh, when your father was shot down? or? Um, well, they the P-51s came in right at the end of 43, the beginning of 44. Um, um, but... Uh, and on um, February 8th, uh, there were no P-51s uh, escorting uh, that mission. There were only some uh, P-38s and uh, P-47s. Yeah, well, they're, they're good enough, but uh, too bad they weren't around your father's B-17 when he fell out of formation. Uh, right. That had, to be, that had to be so scary. I don't know how those gunners uh, uh, shot down any fighters because I flew on the... Uh, B-17 that was used in the movie Memphis Bell, I don't know, about three or four times I've flown on it. And one of the 50 Cowboys came loose from it to, uh, to where they were holding it down. Of course, it wasn't loaded. But I was going to put it back into its little uh, catch or whatever you want to call it. And then I would say, well, I'll tell you what, I'm going to swing this around and see what it's like to try to zero in on something. So I picked out a little uh, uh, spot of a cloud and I tried to zero in on that, and with that bomber bouncing up and down and all the, all the vibrations and turbulence and everything, I couldn't keep the sights on that little bitty cloud. Uh, <laughs> those, <laughs> those guys had to, had to be scary for them. Uh, they, they were in a fight for their lives. It's like the OK Corral, I guess. Um, did you, were you able to talk to any of the crew? Uh, that survived? Um, no, I, uh, my dad got together with the, uh, the crew members that uh, made it home uh, occasionally, and uh, I met them, but I was so small at the time that, you know, I was, you know, I was just thinking of my, my toys or whatever, and uh, I never really uh, questioned them, although some of them did have uh, written accounts of, of that uh, I used uh, for the book and also some oral uh, interviews. So I did, even though I didn't talk to them, I got a lot of information uh, that they provided. So the story of my dad as the, and his crew was all based on first-hand testimony by either members of my dad's crew or members of the Belgium Underground, and then also Hans Berger. Uh, he gave me some wonderful detail and information that's in the book about what it was like to go up against the Eighth Air Force. That did he did he write a book by any chance? The German pilot? 
No, no, uh, he never wrote a, a book, but he has quite a story uh, of his of his own. He 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 was shot down three times and uh, <laughs> made it through the war. Uh, he shot down seven B seventeens and one Spitfire. Wow. Probably the probably the only reason why that he why he made it through the war is right at near the end of the war became a test pilot for the Henkel HE uh, 162 single engine uh, jet engine fighter, which really oh. never was perfected. Uh, but that took him out of combat, and that's uh, probably why he the only reason he survived. I would say so. Uh, unlike all pilots, they, they could do twenty five and made thirty five missions. Uh, and they could be rotated out. The German pilots were in for the war. Um, yes, that's right. They normally didn't rotate out. Okay, folks, we're going to our first break. Uh, Steve, stand by. We're going to come back, and we're going to find out what happened to his father after he bailed out of the B-17 uh, over Belgium. Stick with us. Okay, we're going to go from uh, World War II to Desert Shield and Desert Storm, and I would like to invite everyone this Saturday, July the 17th, at 10 a.m. in Newtown Park in the Veterans Memorial Walk in Johns Creek, Georgia, the Afghanistan Monument will be dedicated in honor of all of those that have served in that country since 9-11, many of which have paid the ultimate price. The host for this will be Colonel Graham White, and uh, we all know Rick White. Colonel Rick White retired, but Graham uh, has served in the Middle East and has a story to tell, and he's going to be the host. He's quite a speaker, and uh, everyone's invited. You need to get there a little early to get you a parking place. Again, it's July the 17th, this coming Saturday, at 10 a.m., and I think uh, Johns Creek has just done a marvelous job. Mike Mazel, we salute all the time, and uh, this is one more step in honoring our veterans and those that have fought to keep us free. So if you can, be there, 10 a.m., Johns Creek, Newtown Park, and it will be quite a quite a day, quite a inspirational day for you. We'll be back right after this. Hi, this is Rocky Blair, former four-time Super Bowl champion with the Pittsburgh Steelers and Vietnam veteran. As a board member, I'd like to talk to you about Warriors to Citizen, a nonprofit organization that helps American heroes, soldiers, police, fire, EMT, and their families recover from the psychological harm caused by career-induced stress. Over the last 20 years, broken relationships have been a major causal factor for the highest document divorce rate and resulting suicides in this population. This program, from Warriors to Citizen, is delivered free to families by professionals, all whom served in uniform and understand the needs to be addressed. I ask for your support. So please, go to our website, warriorstocitizen.org, and find out how you can help, either by making a donation or sharing this information with an American hero that you may know. And thank you. 
Hello, my name is Rick White, and I'm the director of the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. I want to encourage all Georgia veterans to consider being nominated to the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. And if you are a Georgia veteran, then the definition of a Georgia veteran is either you were born in the state of Georgia, or you've lived here 10 years, or you were raised your right hand and joined the military in this state, you are considered a Georgia veteran. For further information, go to www.gmbhof.org, or you can contact me at 678-427-0915. We'd love to have your nomination for the Georgia Military Veterans Hall of Fame. Thank you so much. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. Okay, folks, we're back with Steve Snyder. He wrote a book about his father being shot down over Belgium during World War II and the B-17 Susan Ruth. Um, B-17s carried a, a crew of 10. Two of the Americans aboard that aircraft were killed. The eight others bailed out. Steve, what happened to your dad after he bailed out? Okay, well, he came down uh, into some trees, and his parachute got hung up on the branches, and he was dangling 20 feet off the ground. He couldn't get down. But fortunately for him, a couple of young Belgian men, Henri Franken and Raymond Durand, came to his rescue before the Germans got there. Uh, they went back to the farm, a farmhouse, uh, got a ladder and a rope, helped him down a, a, a tree, and then they... They told him to stay put and hide. It was early afternoon, and they thought it was too dangerous to try to move him in daylight with German patrols combing the area. So uh, he did that, and then the, uh, that night they came back and took him to the Durvan uh, farmhouse, and he stayed there one night. Uh, they thought it was too dangerous for him to stay there any longer than that, uh, again, because those German patrols were, were in the area. So the second night, uh, Belgium customs officer Paul Tilcan came on a tandem bicycle to take him to a, a safer location. And that's, that's an interesting story. They, uh, my dad had some shrapnel wounds in uh, one of his legs, and he could only pedal with his good leg. And they came to a hill, and uh, they couldn't pedal any further, so they got off the bike and started walking up the hill. It was the middle of the night. It was drizzling. When they got to the top of the hill, they came to this uh, this building, a cabaret or a cafe. The, the lights were on, music was playing, people were talking loudly and laughing. And all of a sudden, two German officers come walking out uh, with their arms around these young, two young girls. And one of them comes up to my dad and asks him for a light for a cigarette. Well, my dad couldn't speak German or French at that time. You know, he's, he's kind of panicking. But fortunately, uh, Paul uh, knew what the guy wanted, so he lit his cigarette, and uh, they let him go on their way. My dad said they were too drunk and too interested in these young girls to pay much attention to a couple guys uh, you know, pushing a bike up the, up the hill in the middle of the night. Oh, my God. Yeah, yeah, that was a pretty hairy uh, experience. And then after that, my dad was moved from place to place to place. Uh, How long he stayed at any given location depended on how brave the people were who lived there and how dangerous the Belgium underground thought it was for him to stay there. He might spend one night. He might spend six weeks. And the people who hid my dad, or any down dareman for that matter, were unbelievably brave people. They risked not only their lives, but the lives of their family and friends. Because of the German secret police found out about it, they'd be arrested, tortured, and either sent to a concentration camp or shot. And some of the people that helped my dad and other members of his crew did meet that fate. 
so my dad uh, owes Odema a, a huge debt, and he stayed in contact uh, after the war with uh, a number of the people that he stayed with for lengthy periods of time. And he, there's uh, several instances described in the book where he was almost discovered uh, by the Gestapo. And finally, he, he got he got tired of hiding. You know, it was pretty stressful for him. After all, his planes uh, attacked. You know, it's on fire. He's got a bailout. Comes down in a foreign country. Has no idea where he is. Uh, doesn't know what happened to his buddies on the crew. Can't you know communicate with the U.S. military. He's being helped by complete strangers who can't you know really communicate because my dad couldn't speak French at that time and. Anybody that's helping him could turn out to be a collaborator and turn him over to the Gestapo. And uh, on June 6th, uh, D-Day, 41, uh, word came that the Allies had landed at Normandy, and he decided to get back in the fight. Uh, Unlike most airmen, uh, before he went in the Air Force, he was in the Army for a year. He was stationed up at Fort Lewis, Washington. So he had uh, a year's infantry training. He knew how to fight on the ground. So he decided to join the French resistance. Really? Uh, his helper, yeah, his helpers tried to talk him out of it because it was far too dangerous. Uh, because he could die fighting against the Germans, or if they caught him, he would have been shot on the spot as a terrorist. But he felt it was his duty to get back in the war, um, and he convinced his helpers to uh, accompany him uh, over the border from Belgium into France. And uh, he joined up with a unit of the French resistance called the Mackie. And the uh, the Mackie was made up of uh, independent ragtag guerrilla groups all across France. There were about 20 men in the unit he, he joined. It was re- led by a French lieutenant who had escaped from a German prisoner of war camp. And uh, their job was basically to uh, harass the Germans. Uh, they'd attack uh, convoys, disrupt communications, uh, sabotage railroad lines, assassinate uh, German officers, and they got their uh, instructions uh, from the British over uh, the BBC through coded messages. And my dad said, uh, if they, if the BBC told them that there would be a German convoy coming down on this road at this time, at this day, sure enough, they'd be there which, of course, was a result of the British breaking the German Enigma code and knowing everything that they were they were up to. Huh. And then they also were supplied by the British through uh, through airdrops. And there's a number of instances described in the book uh, of encounters that my dad and the, uh, the Mackey group uh, had with the Germans. Wow. And then finally, uh, seven months after he bailed out, uh, word came that there were U.S. troops in the nearby village of Trelone, France, so he walked into the town square, uh, went up to an army major, actually was an element of Patton's Third Army, which had come up through France <laughs> after D-Day. And he identified himself. They interrogated him to make sure he was who he said he was. And then he uh, caught a ride on a convoy taking German prisoners to Paris and then hopped on a transport uh, from Paris back to England to join his unit where he sent a letter, or, or not a letter, a Western Union telegram. To my mother saying he was fit as a fiddle and to bank the money, honey, because he had all that back pay coming. <laughs> oh man, what a story! That is that is uh, what uh, did uh, your father ever talk about exactly what he did uh, fighting with the underground, the resistance movement? 
Well, yeah, there was, uh, he, he related uh, several stories that uh, I, that are that are that are in the book, and uh, you know, all this took place right at the uh, near the French-Belgian border um, in that area of Belgium. It's all and it's all rural farmland. And everything's still the same. Uh, that uh, the uh, farmhouse where my dad stayed in uh, is still there. I've been in that farmhouse, been up in the little uh, room that he stayed in, and I've been in in the buildings and rooms of many of the uh, the homes and uh, farms where my dad was hidden. So all that history is still there to visit, and uh, it, I get goosebumps uh, just talking about it. Yeah, so were you able to talk to uh, some of the people that were in the resistance movement with your father? No, uh, I don't. He, he didn't stay in uh, uh, contact with any of the uh, the resistance uh, okay. guys that he was with. There were a few Frenchmen, a, sh- a few Belgians, and uh, a few Algerians who my dad said were really vicious fighters. Uh, so I heard, so I heard. So, so they just basically interdicted uh, the German transportation system and and, and troops, uh, maybe trains and things like that, right? Yeah, 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 yeah. On one occasion, they were ready to attack a, uh, a German convoy, and all of a sudden, uh, you know, from nowhere comes uh, some P-47 Thunderbolts, and they said, my dad said, they just lit up that convoy. Uh, it was like watching from something from a movie, he said. It was just, uh, <laughs> he was in awe of the damage that they did. Those P-47s were deadly fighters. They, they were they yeah. good American planes. Um, uh, did your father meet any other Americans when he was fighting with the resistance? No. Um, my dad was totally separated uh, from his uh, other members of his crew or, or any other Americans. Uh, he didn't know what happened to anybody until he got back uh, to England. He didn't even know that you know two of the men uh, died on the plane because they were uh, behind him, you know, in the behind the Bombay. So yeah, he he was totally unaware of 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 what happened to his to his members of his crew and uh, he didn't meet any uh, other US men that, that had been shot down did he ever get reunited with any of his crew during the war um not during the war no uh uh-uh. okay they, uh, they because uh, they, uh, they 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 the guys that that uh, survived you know came back uh, at at different times Okay. Uh, sort of off the wall here, but I know that every bomber and, and ground crew, we had a hodgepodge of Americans from the Irish to Native Americans to uh, the Japanese uh, Americans. What kind of a, a diversity was in your father's crew? Do you know that? Well, my dad was the only one uh, from west of the Mississippi. <laughs> they were... Uh, uh, Crew members from uh, New Jersey, Louisiana, Ohio, uh, Pennsylvania, uh, Missouri. So uh, that's a good point that you bring up, you know, because these guys, these uh, B-17 crews, they were made up of guys all over the United States. You know, they had come from different backgrounds, uh, 
you know, farms or cities, uh, different religions, different uh, ethnicities, and they had to come together to to learn to work work as a crew and to be a, a united unit. And yeah, uh, they, they had the guy from Louisiana and the guy from uh, New Jersey probably had to learn how to communicate. <laughs> <laughs> be right back uh, with Steve Snyder. He's going to tell us about finding and talking to and I suppose meeting the German pilot who shot down his father's B-17. We'll be right back. Hello, I'm Dr. Mike Karuchak. Have you ever wondered what doctors talk about amongst themselves? If you do, join us on the Doctor's Lounge and hear the doctor's conversations amongst themselves. Join me and my co-host Dr. Hal Schertz every Thursday morning, 8 to 9 a.m. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls of all ages, join me, Roger B., every Tuesday at 1400 hours right here on America's Web Radio for the Locked and Loaded Show. We will talk about guns, weapons, ammo, gun accessories, prepping, and so much more. So be sure to join us every Tuesday at 1400 or 2 p.m. for Locked and Loaded on America's Web Radio. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. All right, folks, we're back with Steve Snyder. Uh, Steve, when your father was shot down, of course he was shot down by German fighters, but you got to meet the German pilot who shot down your father's B-17. What was it like to find a German pilot who almost killed your father? Well, I I was so excited uh, when I found out uh, that he, he was alive and that he spoke English. Uh, for the book, I just interviewed him uh, over the telephone and through email. But uh, in 2016 and 2019, uh, I traveled to Munich, Germany, uh, to meet him, uh, have lunch with him. We went to the Hofbrau House and had a couple of <laughs> beers together. And interestingly enough, uh, Hans is the only person out of all the people involved in the shot down story who's still living he's 97 years old now lives in an apartment in uh, in munich and uh i you know a lot of people ask me well don't you hate this guy that shot down your dad's plane uh, but you know he got shot down my dad my dad's plane too but no i i felt in a kind of uh, you know a relationship or uh a personal connection with him from the get-go. There was no other event in my dad's life that was, you know, more defining than World War II. And I, the way I look at it, he was part of my dad's life, part of my dad's story. Um, and plus, you know, he was pretty much just like the U.S. Airmen. He was 19, 20 years old, you know, fighting for his country, you know, trying to do his duty and trying to to stay alive he said it was unfortunate that they had to be shooting at each other but that was war and that was what they were there to to, to do so uh yeah i uh 
It's just incredible that I was able to uh, define him. But as I said earlier, I owe it all to my wife because I didn't even dawn on me to try it because I thought it would be uh, imp- impossible. And when I met with him, you know, he brought out these uh, scrapbooks with all these pictures of him and his. Uh, he was on JG One, and you know, and other uh, pilots of his group and pictures of him during the war. He brought out and put on his uh, his uh, fighter jacket with his iron cross. Pulled out his logbook and showed me his entry on February eighth of nineteen forty four, where he wrote in, you know, that he shot down a B seventeen, my dad's plane. And he was shot down and had to bail out. So, oh, really, really exciting, exciting stuff. Did, did he in any way describe to you what it was like for him to shoot down a B-17? Well, he said he was petrified every time he went out <laughs> to go against the 8th Air Force because uh, yeah, they were so outnumbered by the hundreds of bombers in these formations and all the uh, all the fighter escorts you know, whether it's the 38s, the 47s or the 51s and uh, he said uh, it was it was pretty scary um, pretty frightening for uh, to try to to try to combat the, the, the 8th Air Force but he was successful enough to, to shoot down 7 B-17s Wow! Wow! This, he, he, now, when he shot down my da- when he shot down my dad's plane, they came up from underneath, from down below. Yeah. He said that uh, you know it was suicide trying to come in from behind because you're just in the tail gunner's sights for just way too long. And then when you're coming at him head on, I mean the closing speed is so fast is that you only have seconds to shoot. So it, it, I can't imagine what that was like, you know, for those uh, both the the uh, German and the and the U.S. pilots trying to, you know, fight each other up in the air. I, I bet. What now? What uh, plane did the German pilot fly? Uh, Falk Wolf One Ninety. All right, that, that and then a darn good airplane too. Did he, did he ever get yeah. up to the One O Nine, the Messerschmitt? No. Uh. Uh-uh, uh. 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 He, he, he preferred the 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 the, the Fock Wolf since it was uh, air cooled and not water cooled like the 109. Oh, oh, okay. Uh, he also shot down a Spitfire. I guess that was the regular type dog fight. Did he tell you anything about that? No, um, I I never really asked him to go into the detail, and he didn't really bring it up. You know. I've, uh, the other part of his story is that uh, you know after the war, all anyone that was in the German military were sent back to their hometown where they came from, and he was born in Dresden, which obviously there's not much left of when he went back. Wow! Wow! Yeah. But that was in that was controlled, you know, that was in East Germany and controlled by the Russians. And one day, uh, a friend of his who was a doctor uh, told him that he overheard the Russians talking that they were going to come and arrest him uh, that evening and send him to Siberia. So he risked his life, you know, sneaking over the, uh, uh, from East Germany into West Germany. And that again probably saved his life 
and that's when he became a translator. And he actually worked with the U.S. Uh, military occupational force in the denazification effort of the Hitler Youth. Huh. That, that man has a great story to tell, doesn't he? Yeah. <laughs> Holy cow. Yeah, we just don't think about that. We just don't think about maybe the, the German or Japanese after the war. They, they, we were so happy that the war was over, uh, except for the Marshall Plan and rebuilding Japan. I don't think the American people really knew too, too much about the story of these uh, enemy warriors that we were up against. Um, it, it's just so interesting to me that you were able to find and talk to a pilot who shot down your father. That is so so interesting. Are you still in communications with him? Um, yes, although at, uh, at his age now it's kind of difficult. He's very hard of hearing. Um, and although, you know, he was a translator and can speak several different languages, including English, you know, when you're over the telephone and at his age, you know, he's kind of reverting to thinking back into German. So between the heart being hard of hearing and then just trying to communicate over the telephone, it's kind of difficult. Uh, when you're with him in person, uh, it's okay. But, uh, I call him on his birthday. His birthday is in October. And I, you know, call him on Christmas, and I call him on February 8th, uh, the anniversary of that, you know, the, he and my dad shot each other uh, down. <laughs> so uh, I hope, I hope, I, I don't know whether I'll be able to get back to Germany uh, uh, again, you know, before he, he passes uh, or not. I'd sure like to. I don't know how you run out of things to talk to him about. <laughs> <laughs> So, so on one, really on one like, of, yeah, you really like this guy that tried to kill your father. <laughs> <laughs> you know, on one of the uh, trips that I took, uh, but I was with a couple of the guys, and we filmed an interview with, with Hans. I have a little 13-minute documentary, and portions of that interview is in the documentary that I made. But I also plan to make uh, a video of the entire interview uh, that we had in his, his apartment. And... Uh, also uh, include and narrate some of the things that he wrote in emails and in our discussions, which would be pretty interesting. Wow. Did your, your dad ever talk much about the mission where he was shot down? Yeah, well, that diary that he, he wrote uh, about being shot down is really detailed. And uh, when you read that, it's like you're in the right in a cockpit with the uh, with my dad, and the flames are you know around you, and uh, the, the bullets are flying all over from that you know twenty twenty millimeter cannon fire from the from the Fox Wolf. So it uh, he really did a good, good job in that uh, in that diary that he wrote, but he you know, he had talked about it too. But just out of curiosity, uh, they lost two of the crew. Two of the crew members were killed. Do you know what positions they were at? Yeah, um, uh, they came up from down below. So the ball turret gunner was killed, and the radio operator were killed in the plane. Hmm. All right, eight up now. Eight of them made it. Made it out. But you made said it out. Some, some didn't make it back. Is that correct? 
true. Uh, three of the crew, uh, they met up uh, and they uh, actually joined up with five other downed U.S. airmen and uh, they evaded capture for, for two months and they were hiding in this makeshift uh, hut in the uh, woods outside of Chimay, Belgium that uh, th- uh, some of the uh, members of the underground helped them build. But they were uh, a Belgium collaborator, ratted them out to the, uh, the Germans and uh, they came in, uh, surrounded the hut, uh, captured all eight airmen. They took them back into the schoolhouse in Chimay, Belgium, interrogated them. They brought the eight back out into the woods near the hut, and they shot all eight of them, murdered them. Wow. Yeah, that's, uh, that, it's, uh, there's tragedy and there's, uh, you know, triumph, uh, both in the book. That hut, I've been to the location of that hut, uh, which is marked by four stones out in the woods south of Chimay, Belgium, uh, that the forest wardens at the time uh, marked. So, again, when you go down to this places, I mean, the, the, the schoolhouse there in Chimay where they were interrogated is still there. In fact, there's writing on one of the, in Germans, on one of the walls inside one of the school, the the classrooms so it's amazing the history that uh, is still in this that part of the area about the shot down story and there are places in Europe that they still celebrate being liberated by the Americans and oh so- the Belgium the Belgian people to this day are still so thankful and so grateful for the allies coming to their their rescue and they do a great job of educating the younger generations uh they built a memorial to my dad and his crew in the little village of mackinlaws belgium which is about 200 yards from where the plane crashed down and they have ceremonies there every every february 8th uh to remember and honor uh my dad's crew and i've been to uh i've been to belgium six times and the big celebrations are always centered around September 2nd because that's the anniversary date of where that area was liberated by the uh, U.S. 9th Infantry Division. So and those are people, fabulous events. Yeah, so the people in Belgium don't consider the American flag as a silent symbol of hatred, right? Oh, they, 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 they couldn't be more patriotic. They, they, are, they, they love... Uh, when my dad, the first time I went there, it was, uh, well, uh, let me uh, backtrack a little bit. That uh, The memorial to my dad and his crew was erected in 1989. And my dad and uh, three other members uh, of the crew that were still, still living at the time went over for the dedication ceremonies. And prior to that, my dad didn't talk very much about the war. But when he went to the dedication, there he was reunited with these Belgian people that hit him during the war, revisited these places where he stayed, and that brought it all back. And that's when he really started talking about it. And then five years later, in uh, 1994, the 50th anniversary of the liberation of Belgium, I went with my parents. And that's when it became personal for me, because I saw these places firsthand, and it was actually me able to meet a couple of, of his Belgium helpers that hit him during the war. Fascinating story. 
All right, folks, uh, we're going to our last break. We'll be right back. And Steve is going to tell us about uh, what it was like to fly combat missions in the 8th Air Force. Stick with us. And once again, we want to invite everyone Saturday at 10 a.m. to Newtown Park in Johns Creek. And that'll be for the dedication of, it'll be at the Veterans Memorial Walk in Johns Creek in Newtown Park. And that will be the dedication ceremony of the Afghanistan Monument. And it'll uh, be quite a moving ceremony as uh, Graham White, Colonel Graham White, will be doing the uh, dedication. And he served in uh, Afghanistan and is quite a officer, just like his father is or was. And I want to invite everybody again this Saturday, 10 a.m., at Newtown Park in Johns Creek at the Memorial Walk. And uh, if nothing else, what a way to spend a Saturday morning. It should be pretty, and the park is beautiful. Mike Mazel is in charge of the park and uh, in charge of the, of the uh, healing wall that's there. That's the Vietnam replica of the wall in Washington, D.C., and it's in Johns Creek in Newtown Park. So everyone's invited. We'll be back right after a couple of messages. Hey folks, this is Victor with the On Point with Victor show. Make sure you listen every Tuesday 1 to 2, only right here on America's Web Radio, the On Point with Victor show. Remember folks, I'm not angry, I'm just right. And you can find out why every Tuesday from 1 to 2, the On Point with Victor show, only right here on America's Web Radio. Whether cruising the strip in a 57 Chevy or taking the family on a vacation in a 71 Oldsmobile Vista Cruiser, you need to tune in to Classic Cars with Steve Ronaldo and Jim Weber every Saturday from 8 to 9 a.m. on AmericasWebRadio.com. If you live to serve and want to make an even bigger difference, consider joining the U.S. Army. With training in fields like medical care, linguistics, and engineering, an Army career can amplify your efforts with humanitarian opportunities all over the world. Plus, you'll receive competitive pay and incredible benefits, so you'll be taken care of, too. Learn more at GoArmy.com. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening. All right, folks, we're back with Steve Snyder. Uh, his, his father was shot down as pilot of a B-17 bomber, the Susan Luth, during World War II. Uh, two of his crew members out of ten died in the airplane. Three, uh, Eight of them parachuted out. Three were eventually shot by the Germans. So five made it home. Wow. Okay, Steve, uh, a great, great description of your father's being shot down, what their crew went through, joined the resistance movement, uh, uh, just extraordinary story, and also find the German pilot that shot him down. Tell the folks what it was like to fly combat missions in the 8th Air Force. Well, it was grueling and extremely dangerous. There were 26,000 men that died in the 8th Air Force, which is more than in the entire Marine Corps fighting in the Pacific. Yeah. Uh, another 28,000 men became prisoners of war. 
after their planes were knocked out of the sky, either by German fighters or anti-aircraft fire. Being a combat crewman in the 8th Air Force was the most dangerous duty assignment in the United States military during World War II. And it was dangerous from the time they took off to the time they, they came back to land. Uh, at Come the peak, so there were 40... Go ahead. Okay. Floor is yours. Go ahead. Uh, at the peak, uh, the 8th Air Force had 40 bomb groups located in England in an area called East Anglia, which is about the size of Vermont. And these bases were only located about 5 to 10 miles apart. So the day of a mission, you had hundreds of bombers taken off all at the same time. And back then, you didn't have any air traffic control, uh, no radar, and so everything was based on visual sight. And usually the weather was uh, pretty lousy in England, overcast, you know, fog, and you couldn't see anything until you got above the cloud layer. So mid-air collisions were not uncommon. And then they had to form up. Uh, individual planes formed up into three-plane elements. Elements formed up into bomb squadrons. Squadrons formed up into bomb groups. Bomb groups formed up into combat wings. Combat wings formed up into air divisions. And all this took an hour to, to two hours uh, before they could even start their mission across the English Channel. And then they had to deal with the elements. These planes weren't pressurized, so above 10,000 feet they had to go on oxygen or else they'd pass out in a couple minutes and die. And uh, at that altitude they were flying their missions, it was minus 40 to 60 degrees below zero. So frostbite was a huge problem, and many airmen were hospitalized for lengthy periods of time with frostbite injuries. Uh, one of my dad's waist gunners was in the hospital for two and a half months. Wow. And then they had to deal with enemy fighters. Uh, the Germans had radar stations set up, set up along the continental coast of England, I mean, uh, of, of Europe. So they knew when these bombers' formations were coming, and they'd send up their air force, the Luftwaffe, to intercept them. And then when they neared the target and uh, started their bomb run, they had to deal with anti-aircraft fire. And these uh, these guns, flak guns, they could uh, were deadly weapons. They fired 20 shells a minute, and they were calibrated to explode at the same altitude that these bomber formations were flying. So then if they got through the bomb run, uh, then they had to f try to form back up to head back to their bases in England, where once again they would encounter enemy fighters. And then even when they reached England, uh, they had uh, a number of dangers that they faced. Uh, many of these bombers would be running out of fuel. Um, again, because of the weather, uh, could be crummy and they couldn't locate their bases, couldn't find their bases. Uh, bombers could be... Uh, suffered uh, tremendous battle damage, be all shot up, controls shot out, engines shot out, you know, landing gear that wouldn't come down, uh, brakes that, that wouldn't work. And so, again, you know, you'd have crashes uh, trying to come back to, uh, to the base, and uh, more men would be lost. So it, it was... And then, the, you know, after a mission, they had to turn around and go back up again. You know, that... And uh, as you mentioned earlier... Uh, in April of 43, they implemented a mission limit of 25, which was eventually raised to 30 and 35 by Jimmy Doolittle. But uh, uh, during 1943, probably the deadliest uh, period of the air war, when uh, that Swineford mission was in, in Black Week, even though they had a 25 mission you know, limit before they go home, the average number of missions flown before being shot down was only six. 
it was statistically impossible to complete 25 missions in 1943. So it, it, flying combat was uh, in, in, incredibly uh, stressful. What did your father ever mention the, the weapon he feared most from the Germans? I think it was uh, the anti-aircraft fire. You know, you could you could try to fight against the fighters with your uh, 50-caliber machine guns, but when you're in uh, the bomb run, you, know, you could not take any evasive action. You just had to fly s- straight and level. So you're at the mercy of that anti-aircraft fire. And my dad said even though it was so cold at that altitude, he would just be dripping with sweat and his clothes would be soaked from the adrenaline running through his body. As these, uh, Once you got into that killing field of all those exploding uh, anti-aircraft shells, yeah, the, the concussions would just, of these, of these shells exploding would just violently rock the ship. Um, if the, if a shell hit a plane to a bomber directly, it would just disintegrate and disappear. Or if it knocked off a wing, the plane would just plummet like a stone. So here you have these, you're seeing these guys, planes or bombers around you being shot down by this anti-aircraft flyer, you know, guys bailing out. You know, it, it was just total chaos. Wow. Uh, I can imagine. Did you ever have the opportunity to talk to any other B-17 crews? Oh, yeah, yeah. Um, at uh, our 306 Bomb Group reunions and the 8 Air Force Historical Society reunions, you know, I've had an opportunity to talk to uh other men in the 8th Air Force, and also I go to a lot of air shows around the United States uh, signing copies of my book, so I'll run into veterans at, at those events uh, as well. Okay, to, uh, when you go to these reunions, who are these guys talking about? You know, I know they're talking talk about the war, but really, they've made it home, they're getting older. When they're together, and they went through the war together, and they saw so much death and destruction uh, and they were one of the few that made it, few that made it home. What do they talk about? Well, the uh, you know, but most war, World War II vets don't like to talk about the war. Uh, yeah. I meet so many people uh, that I run into who know very little or nothing about their vet because he never talked about it. Uh, those guys are. You know, without doubt, I think they're the greatest generation. Um, but they just look at the war like, well, the war came. You know, we had a job to do, so everyone did, did their job, and we came back home, and we just got on with our lives. No big deal. You know, it's 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 amazing how humble these guys are. So the really only time they they at these reunions they talk about it, we also we always have like a, a veterans roundtable as, as part of the reunion. So we have uh, some of the vets get up at a table and then ask them to tell their stories. Uh, most of the stories they tell really aren't about combat. You actually have to actually ask them questions directly about combat uh, for them uh, to talk about it. So they, they, uh, but it's fascinating when they, when, when they do. I can imagine. I interviewed a guy that shot down. He was a B-17 pilot also. And his wife and daughter were uh, attended the interview, 
And he said, yeah, well, when I was shot down over here, my wife said, you were shot down? You never told me you were shot down. And he said, yeah, and we bailed out. His daughter goes, you had to bail out of airplane? You had to jump out of airplane? That was the first time they had heard anything about uh, their, hus- their husband or their father's story from World War II. It was the first time right. it happened. Um, and, and, boy, these guys are... But we were discussing before the show, what, about 200,000 left, maybe? Something like that? Yeah, only about 2%. At the end of the war, there were 16 million veterans. There's only like 2% uh, left. And they're all in their mid-90s to, uh, you know, 100. The, uh, my dad, my, my dad retired to, uh, to Sedona, Arizona, and two of his neighbors were B-17 pilots. One had to bail out, and he went over the Pyrenees to get back to England, and the other became a prisoner of war. So, you know, you you, you have the opportunity. Fortunately, I had the opportunities to, you know, talk to these guys. Yeah. Did your father fly after the war? No. Um, after he got back to England, uh, they sent him home uh, to become a B-17 flight instructor in Florida and Ohio. Back then, they had a uh, rule that, if you were shot down and helped by the underground, you couldn't go back into combat because they thought if you were shot down a second time and this, that time captured by the Germans and tortured, you could give up the identity of the people that helped you the first time. The only exception to that rule was uh, Chuck Yeager, who personally met with General Eisenhower and talked him into letting him go back into combat. Wow. I didn't know that story. That is very interesting. We're, we're reaching the end of our program here. Steve, uh, where can the people buy the book or get in contact with you? Okay, well, most people buy it on Amazon. Uh, it's available as uh, in print form, either paperback or hardcover. Also, uh, any uh, ebook form, Kindle or what have you, and also as, a, as an audio book. In the print book, those are, there's over 200 time period photographs. You can visualize everything you're reading about. If somebody wants a uh, autographed copy, they can go to my website, which is stevesnyderauthor.com, Snyder's S-N-Y-D-E-R, stevesnyderauthor.com. And uh, you can contact me there. My uh, email's on there and my uh, telephone number. And There's a great deal of uh, information on my website. Uh, it's not about my book, but about okay, the Air Pete, War General, rapid. the 8th Air Force, veterans uh, interviews. That, that is great, Steve. We've got to go. Thank you so much for the interview. Great, great story. Uh, God bless the greatest generation. Steve, thank you so much, sir. Amen. Thank you very much, Pete. Enjoyed it. You're listening to America's Web Radio on the AmericasBroadcastNetwork.com. Thank you for listening.